0: Two, one, sit back, relax, and enjoy the Beta Sandwich Science
1: Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 67 for the week of November 23, or 23rd as some might say, 2014. On this week's show, we're going to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. The gay gene, does it really exist? The fact that our brains may be shrinking and Ebola is in your genes. And a whole bunch more. We got we we lots to talk about. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Who do we have with us? We have Christian Copley-Salem. Say hello, Christian. Hello. He is a graduate student in cell and molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno, and we appreciate his presence today. Yay. We have with us Carolina Balkenbush.
2: Hi. So sorry. I was just <laughs> thinking about how awesome it is that you introduced Christian in such a way that he couldn't say he isn't.
1: <laughs> maybe that was uh, maybe that was that? Uh, uh, that, that was that that subliminary sublimin. <laughs> i even saying that word right. It's too early. <laughs> it's a subliminal cue that I did or something I don't know it was
2: very well done (laughs)
1: thank you awesome and completely unintentional I'm awesome (laughs) even when I don't try is I think that's what you were trying to say
2: yes you're welcome yeah
1: Caroline is a registered dietitian in Las Vegas Nevada and she is the author owner of the extraordinary food blog carolinas kitchen.com where you can get amazing healthy delicious recipes go there now Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> right now, Stop. We well, after the podcast. <laughs> after the podcast. Well, you can do during both because you know, one's an auditory and one's a visual. It's it's a, it's a mm-hmm. double down system here. I am Scott Barnett. I am also a PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology. And, and that is me speaking. Which, currently,
0: it's always fascinating to me that that ninety nine point nine nine percent of our classes are neither pharmacological nor physiological. It. it the, it
1: is interesting and it has not escaped me either, but uh, <laughs> it's more, I, I, I feel like we're almost, I don't know, it, there's an old school structure within like, so uh, not to talk too much up here, but there's molecular biosciences and this encompasses things like microbiology, which is typically like, like bacteria um virology it includes um biochemistry which is really just like more single molecular interactions molecular biology um am i missing anything there pharmacology all these things are under that molecular biosenses umbrella and they're so diffuse and they, they everything crosses over each other that they really should in my opinion make it a just a molecular biosciences degree but I know some universities have molecular biosciences, PhDs, and I think probably for that very reason. But uh, anyways, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's confusing to me, though, because when you get a PhD, it's so much more specific than that.
1: Yeah, well, I think the argument is is that you can't really have – you can have a degree in one of those, and you can focus on one of those, but you really can't do your job in any one of those without using pretty much all of the other ones. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
1: You know – it used to be that way, but the fact is, that the way we we were moving forward in the sciences is that there's so much more uh, overlap between all the disciplines that it's just not possible to be so focused in one area, but I don't know, whatever. Yeah. Got it. Semantics.
0: Yeah.
1: So, what'd we do this week?
0: Nothing. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not really. Nothing. Nothing.
1: Well, I'm going to start out, and you guys can think of something, because I want uh, the Do people that. care. Uh, okay. Dharma and I did this cooking class. So, for my birthday was like a month ago, and uh, Dharma said, oh, I, I'm getting us this fun cooking class, because I really like to cook. So, we went to this local, like, cooking class. It's like a couples class. So, you get there, and then, like, they have all the ingredients, and then they, you guys make a meal together, and and uh, it was fun. Like, we did the, we actually cooked something I'd never cooked before, because I don't really eat, like a lot of pork and it was like a pork roast but then they had and this is something this is the key you wrap it in pancetta and then you Mm. cook it right and when you cut through it like the pancetta is really salty and it has a really like super porky taste to it so and because a pork roast is kind of plain believe it or not and then when you cut so you get this little like crust on it from the pancetta delicious anyways a lot of fun it was a good time
2: Awesome. Cool. Although the class is expensive, and notes. you
1: don't get to take home the leftover. Oh what? What? <laughs> I know we got a little of the pancetta leftover, but like we made all kinds of other stuff, and they just like take it and back. And I'm like, she's like, why can't we keep those? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm like, they're probably just eating it back there, you know, because we pay all this money, and then we're feeding the staff essentially. But, but uh, yeah, a good way, a good way to get out and do something different, I suppose. But okay, your guys's turns.
0: That's awesome. Um, I've been studying for exams. I I came back from the whole problem in Virginia and ended up with two exams to take almost right away, one of which sucked to high heaven and the other one which is Tuesday and probably won't suck as bad. But,
1: Which I class mean, is the second one for? It's Dr. Shag's class. Oh, this is your one-on-one class.
0: Yeah, and it's really just... Four thirteen, uh, Zilla. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Which for anyone who doesn't know, four thirteen is an undergraduate class in molecular biophysics, which uh-huh. had almost nothing to do with physics, and
1: um, <laughs> it was really just that class. Pro- <laughs> yeah, it was just really just a protein class. But it was a really but, good class, man. I learned a, lo- a lot about a lot of protein yeah. structure and function.
2: I mostly just love telling people that I was taking macromolecular biophysics. <laughs> you yeah. really sound like such a freaking <laughs> badass. <laughs> I
1: totally agree. I totally agree. But um, and you have to say it nonchalantly incredible. when you do it. Yeah. You're like, yeah. oh, I'm just tired. You know. You know. Yes, I'm getting an A in, in molecular biophysics, but it's just a lot of work.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget macromolecular. Yeah,
1: macromolecular.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you've taken her classes, her exams are pretty straightforward. Like. They're all short answer. They're just like the final was. Right. Uh, which is, I took
2: that class for her first semester teaching it. so Oh, did you? Was, there was an especially large curve that year. <laughs>
0: uh. ours, ours was pretty good. It, I mean, people were having trouble with it because they didn't study enough. But mm-hmm. none of the test questions, they're all like, name this. Name two of these. Right. Name one of those. Draw this. Um, and this is exactly what these questions As are. As a matter so
1: of fact, one of the questions on my test was draw a beta sandwich. Yes, <laughs>
2: yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that
1: was on my too. <laughs> draw a Greek key, like all these fun domains. Yes, You're right.
0: Like, ooh, I can do that one. This was uh, that's where beta sandwich came from, man. Yeah, I know that class. Mm-hmm. That was the,
1: That was the the genesis.
0: Yeah, but this is basically just the graduate version of that. Uh-huh. And uh, it, so it's cool. Same test structures, and she gives us a study guide with all of the test questions on it um <laughs> did, well, did i hear that right she,
1: yeah she what you a way to, one could reward that is she gives you the test
0: no no because she gives <laughs> us a study guide with like 200 questions uh-huh. on it yeah. and like I'm 10 sure. of them will be on the exam
1: ah uh, yeah the uh my first biology class coming back to college was the same way she gave you like 250 questions you said all my questions are on from here and so uh, if you ever get this with their multiple choice I'm gonna in you're an undergraduate and you're listening right now I'm gonna tell you a really important psychological key here so go through the test even though there's 200 questions find the right answer to every single question now if you just want to pass the test read through the questions over and over and over again and only allow yourself to don't look at all the options only allow yourself to look at the correct answer yes over and over, never, ever, even set your eyes on the wrong answer. Cross them out in sharpie. And when you go to take the test, even if you don't remember the answer, your brain will lock onto that right one based on that that root familiarity from saying it two hundred times, from looking at the right answer over and over and over again. And right. as soon as I started doing that, I was acing every single test.
2: Yeah, nice. it's it's unfortunate that that's the way we quote unquote learn right. for some classes, but
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> These are all short answer, so it's just like you just type it out. You go in the PowerPoint, you type it out, and then you just basically I just retype it over and over again. Cool. Good times.
2: I'm glad I was not studying for exams this week.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's something I will not miss. I'm I'm kind of over that whole routine. I've got
1: one more test for the rest of my life. I hate you. so excited. I know it's just in a couple weeks here, so. Then there. you have to write a grant, which is a bigger te- form of a test. It is a bigger form of a test. I've, <laughs> actually, I've got it. Buckson's having Well, anyways, I'm writing a grant in two weeks, and then I'm writing a brand new one in like three months. So, I, in a way, I do have many more. This is like one of those life tests. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, at least it's stuff you like, so whatever. Indeed. Indeed. So, um, <laughs> and then right before we get into uh, the science here, I want to tell people, so, uh, we have lots of spaceships going around the solar system right now, which sounds like science fiction, but it's not, of course, and it's awesome. And you think I'm going to talk about Filet, but I'm not. I'm going to do that a little bit later. I know this is a Molecular Biosciences Podcast, but they, uh, the uh, JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, from NASA, just put out some new photos of Europa, which is uh, one of the larger moons of Jupiter, and it's the ice planet there. Um, uh, I think the four big ones, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto... And I'm missing one here. EO. Um, but they so those are the b- four big ones and and uh and Europa's freaking awesome. And they have these super beautiful high resolution photos of Europa that look like they just they're complete science fiction, but they're not. They're totally cool. I'm putting the link in the show notes. Go there and um and enjoy, as a matter of fact. Um I'm sending it to my colleagues as we speak. Ta-da. There you guys go. Um, so, having said that, I think uh, we should probably move on to Science Blast.
0: Pew science pow. Blast. Wow, that was opera. Thank you. <laughs> it wasn't a good opera. It was opera. <laughs> <laughs> That's getting worse. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat>
1: so um, let's talk some science. Christian, I really am curious to know your thoughts uh, on the science behind this paper. I just randomly was looking around and it said something about every once in a while you get these stories that come up that are like, gay Gene. And I'm like, oh, Christian will talk about this. So,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, give it to the gay. Give it to the gay guy. Such a stereotype. So, is there a gay gene? Um. Okay. My opinion,
0: probably not. But here's the here's the problem. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little background because in order to for me to say what I think about this paper, um, everything has to be sort of on the table. So, one of the things that people have always had the impression of from the outside is that genetics is a one-to-one thing. There's a gene that makes your hand. There's a gene that makes your eye. There's a gene that makes you hate ketchup. There's a gene that makes you like fish, whatever. All of that stuff is totally BS. Um, The real, the actual way to think about these things is that your genes are a set of blueprints that help your body develop. And they of course then influence things like behaviors and so on and so forth but to say that there is a one to one mapping ignores the complexity of development um there's only you only have what what is it 30 to 20,000 genes active genes you have maybe hundreds of genes that are involved in development directly um there's no way that that many genes could create the complexity and multitude of desires and things that go on. Um, And Scott and I could argue about free will on the podcast, but we won't. Um, But basically you're created by your environment in the womb, your environment outside the womb, your genes, everything, they all play an interactive role in making you who you are and how you look. And, so the idea that you can find a one-to-one mapping is unlikely at best. There are a very few rare exceptions where a specific gene is linked to a single thing, like uh, what's the sickle cell anemia. Right. Sickle cell anemia is literally a disease where one-point mutation in a gene causes the disease. Right um, There are genetic diseases where a specific mutation or a specific allele will cause you to have the disease. But in general, genetic problems are complicated and not always a simple fix, and so this idea... Like autism, that,
1: probably, right?
0: Oh, most likely. Um, right. Even if there are genetic um, predispositions, whatever that even means, um, those predispositions don't mean that you're going to have autism. And that's the danger. One of the things that, that I really feel like we need to emphasize as a culture before getting into this age of genomic medicine is that if you go to somebody and you say, well, you have some risk factors for heart disease, that does not mean you are going to get heart disease because people have this predestined genetic doomsday kind of attitude and it's just simply wrong. Um, if you have a mutation, you'll probably have sickle cell, but that's, that's the outlier. That is the exception, not the rule. Um, right. So, of course, then the March for the Gay Gene is not just a scientific endeavor, but it's a political endeavor. It's a social endeavor. And honestly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter either way whether you can find a gene for it. It is a developmentally regulated process that may or may not have simple answers. And honestly, I don't know why we care so much. Um, as a society, we care. Because we have a political agenda that's tied up in it. And to that point, um, after reading this paper, I read a whole bunch of commentaries on this paper. And then I did the one thing that you should never do, especially in this No, just read the comments. <laughs> just reading the comments. Just reading, reading even, the comments. Oh, don't even read the comments. It's terrifying. It, it's just so full of trolls. It isn't even trolls per se, it's people whose understanding of genetics is inversely proportional to their confidence in their understanding of <laughs> genetics. Okay.
1: That's a great comment. <laughs> and,
0: and we all know that that is a huge problem. The less you know, the more likely you are to think you know more. Right. And this whole thing with, you know, it, it's all a political game or it's all a science, con- you know, conspiracy and all of this stuff, and it isn't made better... By studies that suck.
1: So, d- did this study suck? It did. And was there actual what, molecular biology behind it, or was it like what were they looking at?
0: It is, it's an old school. Okay, this is weird. It's actually just an attempt at a replication. A long time ago, there was a guy, and I'm going to talk about some genetics stuff. Genetics, a classical genetics is really complicated, there's lots of math. And the way that they do it is difficult to process, even for somebody who's in a molecular biosciences degree. So I'm not going to get that complicated with it. But there's certain things that we need to know. A long time ago, a paper was written where, um, with a small study size. I want to say 20-ish people somewhere. Not, not very big. And in that study, they found what's called a linkage correlation to a specific part of the X chromosome. Now that's going to require some, some vocabulary. In genetics, linkage means that a region of chromosome tends to inherit together. So another thing that people have this mistaken idea of is that when you are made, what you get is one half of your mother's chromosome and one half of your father's chromosome. That is incorrect. What you get is a reshuffling of all of your individual parents' chromosomes and then they cut them in half and then they put them together. So they take both halves of your mother's genome so your grandparents' contributions to her they reshuffle those together. It's called um, recombination. Then they give you half of her chromosomes that are all rearranged and have both sets of chromosomes mixed in there. Right. So the diversity, the, the level of potential diversity that that creates is an evolutionary goldmine. That's why people don't look exactly like their parents. Um, and why they aren't it always they're a weird mix of their grandparents personalities and i mean all kinds of diversity goes on there so and if i
1: remember from genetics it's it's relative how much they get mixed up is relative to their closeness to the central right um it's actually
0: linkage has to do with the fact that certain regions recombine together and they don't ever get separated uh, so that
1: a, a set of a couple genes always tend to move together, re- right. regardless of where they go.
0: Right. So you either got, say, your parents have chromosome one and or chromosome A and chromosome B, and they're the same. Um, a certain portion of that, when it crosses over with the other one and they get mixed, that's that segment will remain intact in both chromosomes. It'll just be from the opposite one. Got it. Uh, so, classical geneticists, this guy named Morgan came up with what's called a centimorgan, which has absolutely no relationship to physical distance at all. When you say that something is one centimorgan away, what you're saying is that there's a specific recombination probability between those two genes. So if gene A and gene B recombine less than a certain percentage of the time, they're most likely linked. So that's how they measure this linkage. They figure, well, if we look at how often they're recombined, um, we'll see the percentage of recombination. And if it's really low, that means they're linked. If it's really high, that means they're not. So what he'd do is he would map out chromosomes based on that information to try to get an idea of what is close together and far apart. And you could figure if something's recombined constantly, it's probably further apart than if it's never recombined. And two completely separate parts of the chromosome can't be linked because there's a hundred recombination sites in between that could separate them during that process. So what happened was, it, for the gay gene, this guy did this study where he looked at linkages. He looked at the po- probabilities of recombination between SNPs. And now, SNPs are single nucleotide polymorphisms. That means he found unique polymorphisms to the population he was looking at, and then he did math to figure out whether or not those were linked or not linked. And then he drew a correlation to areas of chromosomes, that areas of chromosomes, not genes, areas of chromosomes, mm-hmm. that were most likely preserved under the phenotype that he was looking for. Which and the phenotype gay. that he was looking at was that people self-reported on the Kinsey scale, which um, the Kinsey scale is basically, how gay are you?
1: <laughs>
0: and, uh, I'm not kidding. And it goes from um, from zero to fabulous. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It totally goes from, from zero to RuPaul. Um, but it actually goes from zero to six. And typically, gay men self-report on the extremes now that doesn't mean that they're there realistically how you know it people lie about sex people don't understand their own sexuality so if you ask a man the odds are that they're going to respond either 0 or 1 as in very heterosexual or 5 or 6 very homosexual when you ask women you get a zero to six spread. Yeah, you, you do. Get, you, you, you get a... <laughs> damn it. You, you get, I was about to say, you get the rainbow of fruit flavor, but it is true that women self-report as quote-unquote bisexual spectrum sexuality where men tend to polarize. So what the guy was looking at was a five to six answer on the Kinsey scale, which means they said, yeah, I'm super gay. Very gay, right. And... Um, none of that, by the way, has to do with with traditional gender stereotypes or anything. It's just the sex that they prefer to be associated with, um, not whether or not they wear you know high
1: heels and a bra or whatever. It's a totally different thing.
0: This right. just is, do you prefer women or men? Yes or no? Would you
1: ever they, have sex with a woman? If the answer is no, you're closer to six. Correct.
0: It's okay. five or six. Yeah. If you say maybe, sometimes you could be like a four, but- Anyways, the point is men self-select into the polar opposites. So what he did is he took some twins who had who were gay and self-reported that way, and then he looked at their chromosomes and tried to find linkage maps that were common that were relatively common. They use what's called an LOD, which oh man, I'm not even gonna go into how they figure this crap out. But traditionally, LOD will call LOD the p-value of genetics. Okay, yeah. it's it's kind of a statistical method, um, and it's complicated. And you add a bunch of stuff together, and then you find the, the biggest number, and you just sort of assume that that's the correct answer. Um, they they like them to be above three. Okay, so For the scale is like, significance. right. So the scale is like one to eight or zero to eight or something. Um, so the guy, um, I, don't, I didn't read his original paper, but basically he, he found what he claimed to be a link to chromosome X, which makes a lot of sense in a genetic context, because the thing that people have a problem with in terms of a genetic pro- gene for gayness is that It doesn't propagate itself. It has no reproductive value, quote unquote, which you could even argue about that. But that's the argument is that if it has no reproductive value, it's literally the opposite of reproductive value. How could it stay in the population? It would go away. If everyone that got that gene refused to to reproduce, the gene would go away. Now, nobody's going to make the argument that, that gay people... Didn't reproduce in in history. Yeah, okay.
1: hold on. Let me let me put one thought there though. So, okay. but if you have a if you if it takes so let's say you have the gay gene is actually three different genes that are spread across several chromosomes, and if the so rare I mean it, it makes sense that the parents of gay people are rarely gay themselves because they're choosing to reproduce with someone of the opposite sex. So if it's just a if if a If you have these innocuous genes that do not, A, by themselves do anything uh, uh, that is against reproduction. Or B, maybe they don't have any function at all that deals with reproduction. But if you have all of them recombining in kind of just this random roll of the dice, um, then wouldn't you think that would stick around? Because, Because now the children of the straight parents... One of them may randomly, through the roll of the dice, get the combination that 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 leads to a gay you know, predisposition. So it's sticking around because it. The problem
0: with that is that it runs too high a statistical likelihood within families to be that complicated. Um, it if it is genetic, if there is a genetic component, which there probably is, because to say there's no genetic component is absurd anyway. It the probability is that it's not probably more than one or two um, genes that contribute to the propensity to potentially think that it may be associated with gayness or whatever. But um, the logic is based on genetics is that the probability that the frequency that you see gay brothers lends the idea that there is a that there's a genetic component in there that can be found. That's why people are searching for this um, at a scientific level. Right. Oh. And so one of the things that that causes a problem for is how does the gene stay in the population, which there's all kinds of reasons why it would stay in the population. A lot of gay men that I know who are older, way older than me, have kids because they grew up, they got married, they had kids. They finally said, you know what, I've had it with this, I'm gay. And then they went off and married a man or whatever. But. Right. It, it hasn't been an impediment to reproduction in the way that you it seems logical at first at first glance. And second, one of the things they're looking at is a an X linked gene. And you get your X linked from your mother and so if there is a, a reproductive successful increased probability from that gene in a female and it causes men to be gay, it's going to propagate in the population. That's, right. one, that's the logic of what they're doing. Um, whether or not that is true has yet to be shown because, as I'm about to tell you, this study doesn't show it. And again, we get a, we get a title, Genome-Wide Scan Demonstrate Significant Linkage for Male Sexual Orientation actually it was not st- statistically significant. Yeah. The word significant is completely and totally out of place in this study.
1: Which is their, very common. Their LOD was 2.5. Oh. Did which, they shift the LOD until they got their quote-unquote significance? No, they just reported it as 2.5. Oh, oh, so
0: they,
1: <laughs> they weren't reported even- reported tr- it. Right. They admit
0: that it's not statistically significant. Right. This, I read an article with the author who was like, yeah, it's not really significant, but we think it's true. <laughs> I'm not kidding you that is, that is a study So here's, here's why I told the old school story they, Their job with this study Of 400 gay brothers Was to replicate the original study So they wanted to use The same methods that, that this guy used Nobody uses these methods anymore They're outdated It would be like doing everything um, Without a western blot Because the other guy didn't use a western blot Right and their conclusion was that they got the same kind of data he did. It wasn't very convincing. But the, and the sample size was huge. An N of 409 is huge. That's 908 people because they were brothers. Right. So they looked at these families. That had It says there's 908 analyzed individuals in 384 families, and they couldn't come up with significance. That's about the, that's the opposite of convincing. (laughs) So all they did was a genetic linkage study. So they didn't look at individual genes. They looked at regions of the chromosome. They found one region that the only reason they care about it is because it was in the previous study. They didn't find it to be significant, but they reported on it anyway because it was in the other study. And it looked like it might be close to significance. It would be like getting a p-value of 0. 0.8 or 0. 0.08. Right. It's kay.
1: close, and they're like, "Wow, well, well, we should keep looking because it's close." But if you say ahead of time, "I'm going
0: to use 0. 0.05 as my p-value cutoff," and you get 0. 0.08, you're done. You're done, right? Um, it, which is, in and of itself, not necessarily true. Um, that's just a 0. 0.3, a 0. 0.03 increased likelihood that that probability would come out at random, um, which honestly, does that sound all that interesting? Not really. So it's, I don't know. But none of the results were significant. They, um, it was a lot of, we hope, we wish, we'd like to see. And so there's a new genetic test. uh, It's called GWAS. And I couldn't, for the life of me, understand it. Um, It's a computer-based software thing, now they're going to redo the entire study using the modern technique because they feel like they will get better results doing it that way than they did doing it the old way, which was unnecessary anyway. But they were doing it to try to replicate the results of the previous paper, which they did. They replicated the (laughs) Um. (laughs) non-result.
1: Congratulations. Yes, congratulations. So until these results come out, it's a gay camp for you, Christian.
0: Yeah, seriously reassignment camp for you. (laughs) Which which is, you know, that's the thing. Is it is it even gonna matter at this point? Right. Does it even matter? And I don't think it does. It's interesting and if they find it find it something, if they find a, a genetic connection, that's great. I guarantee there's a genetic connection. Even and this is where Scott could argue with me I don't care. Even if it's a choice, there's a genetic connection. Because there's some filter in your brain that was the result of development, which was the result of a genetic program. So it's probably influenced by that. But can you say that there is a gene that did that chain of events? Probably not.
1: Any so any behavior at all, even if it's hugely influenced by society um, or your upbringing, you know, the whole nurture thing. It all has a basis in a gene. Behavior is completely genetic, and then it gets filtered and changed through exposure. But it all has a basis in your, in correct. Your, I mean, correct. you talk to anyone with children; they say <laughs> that their they say that their kids when they're like three years old are like like they're kind of who they are in a weird way. Like you, you, there. Are, of course, things change, but it's so set in stone in a lot of ways. So,
0: yeah, very much my brother. My brother's personality has been very consistent since he was like four, right? And and he knew what he wanted to do with his. Career at four, so you know that's to be envied. Um, but
2: yeah, it's it's interesting to me that this kind of research is uh, sounds like it's fairly well funded. Because I yeah. think it's, it's interesting to people. People want to understand, you know, uh, kind of what's what's behind that. Is it is it a choice? Is it uh, predetermined genetically? And and I think that whole predetermined genetically thing is sort of an interesting idea because, like you said, you know, it might there might be a genetic link, but that doesn't mean you that free will isn't involved at all.
0: See, and I don't buy the free will argument at all because I don't believe in free will in any sort of way. And Scott and I can sit for hours and argue about red this. Light,
1: red light, red light, red light.
0: <laughs> the point is that that all becomes, until until the free will debate is settled. That maybe, becomes maybe a free philosophical. will. Maybe
2: free will is the wrong wrong word, but I guess uh, self control and something like if if you were to find out that somebody is predisposed to alcoholism genetically doesn't mean that they're doomed to be an alcoholic for sure right there still has to be some degree of choice involved in that
0: but then we but then we say things like are they doomed to be gay
2: yeah i know Well, <laughs> i mean is it
0: that bad you know <laughs> and that is just that's that's the socio-political part of it it, it has Which nothing can't be discounted
1: with- because the quality of life for millions of people what you know whether it is genetically based or not is affected by you know the the, the the policy from from lawmakers and
0: right.
1: if if you were able to show that there is a strong genetic predisposition for being gay, it, it would be so much harder for for laws to be maintained or passed or 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 slowed down that deal with discrimination based on sexual orientation. And, and I
2: think there'd be there'd be more compassion, less stigma. It'd be, it'd be and I thing. would
1: love for that to be true, but.
0: There, It's a double-edged sword because the moment it's genetic, it's a defect and can be corrected. Can we
1: fix it? <laughs> we <laughs> no, some
0: gene therapy so you'll, you'll, why, you'll like why Playboy. That's you're not going to win this socio game through that. It uh-huh. is going to have absolutely no effect on it. It would just change where the, the fight is being quote-unquote made. Right. But it would have absolutely no effect on it. No, Whoever has an opinion is going to have that opinion. And if it's genetic, they'll just change their opinion to fit – the genetic part of it, but it isn't going to change anything, which is why I don't think it's that important.
1: Well, awesome. uh, that's, that was an awesome topic, Christian. appreciate you digging into it for us. So yes. uh, yeah, the, it, the answer, answer is there is then, no answer yet, right? Yeah, right. The answer yeah. is they don't have anything.
2: You have to report on it again when they do the retest with the new methods.
1: With the GWAS. Yeah, which It'll be like 10 years from now, but
2: whatever. Uh, well, we'll still be recording for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, this week on the Beta Sandwich Science Spot, episode... Six hundred forty-seven. Right. The gay gene. Awesome. Um, Carolina. Yes. I want to okay. hear about cognitive behavioral therapy.
2: Let's do it. Okay. I'll I'll be I'll be fairly brief with it. So I first heard of cognitive behavioral therapy um, a few years ago in a nutrition conference, and the quality of presentations in nutrition qual- uh, conferences varies a lot between, like, completely just touchy-feely and not science-based to, like, actually pretty good solid evidence for things, and I kind of felt like the cognitive behavioral therapy session was very much like a hippie session. I thought it was weird. Cognitive behavioral therapy is basically a a type of psychotherapy that's used, it's actually been used since, like, the 1960s. It's been around for a very long time. Um, It's a type of therapy used to treat depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, eating disorders, Um, actually a a large variety of conditions and um, it's generally considered like a a top choice in treatment for a lot of these things. Um, So uh, I I decided to look into it again because Nature News is is doing this huge feature on uh, depression right now. So they have a whole bunch of interesting articles about it and they have a whole article specifically on cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, The reason they're focusing on depression is is it's uh, a disorder that Affects over 350 million people, according to the World Health Organization.
1: <laughs> well, Excuse me.
2: Bless you. <laughs> and they say that, that it's the disorder that uh, takes the most uh, time away from the world because of the the number of, of lost hours due to disability. Um, I guess it, it's it's more of a long-term condition. And I know there's a lot more tension with it now um, with Robin Williams' death. So I, I know kind of culturally... Um, we're more interested in learning about it and, uh, knowing how to treat it effectively. So, um, cognitive behavioral therapy basically teaches you to be your own therapist. And a lot of these, I remember when I was taking psychology classes in undergrad, I thought a lot of, a lot of the topics I learned were things that I knew, but I didn't know I already knew. And cognitive behavioral therapy is one of these things that seems pretty common sense when, when you learn about it. Um, but it actually works. It's like, it's like a, a real thing that's been studied. So basically what the therapist will do is that they'll meet with a person who's depressed every week and they'll teach them methods for kind of evaluating their negative thought patterns and teach them to, re- to catch those negative thoughts and respond to them differently than they would automatically do. So as an example, if you're just really insecure and you have a, a co-worker who you just Think is just so much smarter and better than you, or be a classmate, um, then you can kind of get into a depression by thinking like, okay, you know, I'm worthless, I'm terrible. This person's way better than me. But a therapist would work with you and, and basically have you, po- you know, point out the facts. What are some good things that you do? Um, what are some things that you don't do so well? What about this other person? Are there any things that they don't do so well? It kind of gives you more of a realistic idea of what's really going on. And you can respond more rationally to your negative thoughts. Um, And it's proven to be very, very effective, um, not for all people with depression, but um, it's been shown to be effective in between, they say, 42 to 66% of people with depression, um, even beyond the treatment time, which is usually like 12 to 14 weeks, up to 20 weeks, um, depending on the case. Uh, Antidepressants, on the other hand, have a success rate of about 20 to 40%.
1: So, um, and there was that be- article, geez, that just came out a couple months ago, um, which the pharmaceutical industry is not terribly thrilled about, which shows that un- under mild to moderate depression, uh, what do you call them? Uh, um, most therapy, most pharmaceutical therapeutics are completely ineffective, um, like statistically completely ineffective, even for moderate depression. Uh, now, severe depression, they can make a huge difference but but mm-hmm. to your point uh, the 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 drugs don't aren't always tapping into the problem
2: right and so so the way i probably the best way to look at it is depression isn't just like a single disorder that always works the same way it's like yeah. different par- parts of your brain can be messed up in different ways and maybe in some forms of depression maybe the more severe forms an antidepressant can target that issue better than cognitive behavioral therapy but the, the research that they've done shows that cognitive behavioral therapy works on the way that your prefrontal uh, cortex works and your amygdala. So your prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain that um, assists in planning, um, complex thinking, decision-making, um, basically processing complex um, thoughts. And your amygdala is sort of like the the emotional part of your brain that lights up whenever you, you have intense feelings. It's like your your limbic system. Um, so in people with depression, a lot of the time with um, functional magnetic um, imaging they, they, they see that in your prefrontal cortex you have decreased activity and when you have decreased activity in prefrontal cortex that means that you, you have, kind of have a tendency to have increased activity in your amygdala in the emotional part of your brain so it's almost like letting your emotions run away with you um so with cognitive behavioral therapy what they start to see is that you have increased activity in your prefrontal cortex so you're able to think more critically about a situation more clearly and then that therefore will decrease activity in the amygdala. Um, so they've seen that, but it's, it's kind of a difficult thing to study. Um, it, it's hard, you, you can't really do studies on cognitive behavioral therapy like uh, double-blinded, which would be the gold standard of research, because a therapist will know which patients are getting that type of therapy and the patient will obviously know whether they're getting a placebo or not. Um, it's not like you can just take a, a, a pill and it would be similar. Um, and it's also underfunded. You know, studies on antidepressants are much better funded because you have all these pharmaceutical com- companies interested in doing the research, but with CBT it's um, a bit more of a struggle to get funding. Um that being said, though, it, it sounds like it's a pretty good option for people. Um, and the, the, the tricky thing is trying to figure out who it will work for and who it won't. Because like I said, um, CB2 doesn't work for all people with depression. It seems to work better for um, people who have some kind of a problem with that prefrontal cortex amygdala connection. So one of the methods that they've Figured out for kind of um, screening people for what type of therapy they should get, whether they should be on antidepressants or whether they should receive behavioral therapy, um, is by showing people um, negative words on a screen and then they, they see how much your pupils dilate. And if your pupils don't dilate as much in response to seeing negative words on a screen, that's associated with a lower level of activity in your prefrontal cortex, therefore making you a better candidate for cognitive behavioral therapy Ah,
1: that's an interesting test
2: yeah so that's sort of their method right now but obviously they it needs more research there are probably only about a dozen studies on this type of therapy so it's still fairly new but I thought it was cool that nature news did a feature on it kind of bringing attention to it and uh, I think that really gives a little bit more credibility because when I heard about it back in the nutrition conference I figured it was sort of like a weird hippie not a real thing, but it sounds like it is a definitely a legitimate therapy and a good option for, for people who maybe aren't comfortable starting on medication. It might be a good way to, um, to start treatment. And, and Scott, I know you mentioned that um, Dharma had a lot of success with this type of therapy. I personally hadn't known anybody hadn't known anybody who had undergone
1: Yeah, when I mentioned it to her, so she said that there's like, as far as the cognitive behavioral therapy, there's two types. There's a restructuring therapy and there's an exposure therapy. And she said the restructuring, the difference is that in restructuring therapy, you get, um, um, uh, you get, they focus on moving forward. So you take whatever negative effects you have, or whatever, if you're exposed to a stimulus and the negative effects, and you say, no, no, let's just focus on the future, how you're going to behave in that sense. Cognitive exposure therapy is what she went through, um, focuses on the past. You actually relive whatever negative experience you had over and over and over again. And you essentially, um, you, 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 uh, Let's say it was something like, uh, this isn't her case, but let's say it was like, um, like uh, this is very popular for, for PTSD with war vets, right? And you would record yourself telling that horrible experience, whatever caused the PTSD from the war experience, uh, you would record that and you, you listen to it over and over and over a matter of weeks, sometimes even months. Uh, you... You you verbally say it over and over and over again until you've done this hundreds if not thousands of times, and you are kind of to your point, which I didn't think of the 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 the, the neurological aspect of it is that you are you're kind of numbing the experience. Your 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 brain is rewiring so that rather than you know imagine if you told any story a hundred times you would just be over it. You know what I mean? At a certain point, and I think that's the idea, and it must be. Right shifting to this more innocuous frontal lobe logical side and away from that that deep emotional response you get in the amygdala and and um and she had enormous success and i know it's popular for a lot of vets and um um and so i mean there is it's very anecdotal my you know her experience but but ultimately um i guess for some people it works great you know if it works it works i mean that's kind of the proofs in the pudding as they say right Yeah. yeah so yeah, no, that was
2: kind of an anticlimactic ending,
1: but yep, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, super cool. Um, we don't do we don't do a lot of neurology, so it's always nice to hear about that a little bit there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, we've moved pretty far along here. I'll, I'll just do a couple like short little tidbits here. Um, uh, I know I said I was going to talk about uh, about uh, marijuana and uh, and and um, certain um, what do you what are those called? Uh, when your brain doesn't work right Uh, mental disorders (laughs) (laughs) apparently which I am suffering of one Uh, but uh, I want to do a little more dig into it a bit more so we're gonna have to wait on that but uh, so I had already mentioned one space story I I would feel remiss if I did not bring up this other space story here so um, we've all pretty much heard of Rosetta at this point which uh, not the stone the spacecraft that is flying through space Um, there's a really cool mini documentary on PBS, uh, which you can get online for free too, uh, where they go through the whole process of what it actually did. So, um, Rosetta was just a spacecraft that flew out 300 million miles away. It dropped this little tiny rover fillet onto, uh, onto the, onto the surface of the comet. And, um, and, and so, but what they found though, in, they haven't said anything more, which I find frustrating at this point, but they actually detected with filet on the surface of the comet, amino acids. Um, they did not say anything more than that. Um, and this is actually isn't the first time we've detected amino acids. Uh, we sent a, uh, something back several years ago, and, and I forget the name of the spacecraft, but it actually sucked up. Basically, what was um, coming off the tail of the comet—that big, long plume behind the comet—caused by ablation—and and they detected glycine, which is the simplest amino acid—and um—and and so that's super fascinating. And so did the Rosetta. So the, the the theory is, you know, this helps people who believe in the theory that Earth was seeded, essentially. And so. You know, there's two ways uh, life came on to planet Earth. One was that, uh, and they've shown this can actually be done with the right combination of um, atmosphere and water and electricity. Uh, You could spontaneously make these initial amino acids to kind of be the seeds of life. Um, It's not very likely for this to happen, but with the sheer number of events over billions of years, you know, you you pull that that arm on the, the... on the slot machine enough you're going to come up with you know jackpot eventually and so that is one possibility the other of course is that some other place on the uh, on the universe life was proliferating and who knows the genesis of that but then it came through all these comets and stuff and they bombard planet earth and then you get a whole you get this nice seed source of amino acids and dna or whatever you want it to be and so we are we really are like a. Like a biology, like a greenhouse for some other alien civilization, um, which I find pretty cool, and I hope ultimately <laughs> is the case. But, uh, <laughs> but um, so to the whole point, they have found amino acids on this this comet, and um, and so so we're waiting on for them to, to give us more information. Unfortunately, if you're not following it too closely, they dropped the space the craft onto the comet. It's supposed to have these spikes that launched into the surface to hold it there, but those didn't launch properly. So the comet bounced a couple times, then it landed on its side, and then it landed in like it needs solar power and it landed in an area after it bounced with not a lot of sun. So they were able to get just a little bit of data before it shut down from not having enough sun. But they think because it's traveling towards the sun right now it's going to build up enough solar power, to turn back on, and they might be able to get some more data from it. So hopefully we're going to get some some pretty robust data from the surface of the comet. But uh, I'm all for alien seeding of civilizations. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think – do you guys think it sounds that crazy that, like, we were seeded from another alien population? Uh,
2: that sounds a little crazy.
1: Sounds a little nutty? Mm-hmm. I'll accept
0: I, that. You know, it, it only sounds crazy if you you don't look at humanity – going forward and doing that ourselves. Mm. I mean, what are the odds that humanity in some point in the future could develop technology to create artificial life forms? Basically,
1: we're already there. Right. Um, and just imagine if you're on the other side of the universe and you're a few million years ahead of us, even a couple hundred thousand years ahead of us, imagine what we're going to learn in the next hundred thousand years. We can harness Wormholes. We might be able to shoot stuff across the universe in a matter of you know years instead of hundreds of thousands of years. And uh, I, I don't, I don't think it's that nuts.
2: Ugh, you know, I just, I'd... I just imagine like this cosmic ant farm, you know. It is. Kind <laughs> yeah. <trying> of watch <laughs> just, just for the sake of entertainment.
1: <laughs> so, um, all right, that's that one side note. So uh, we are already at fifty minutes. So I'll just do one, one more really small one here. You guys can choose. You want to learn about Ebola giant cancer genes or uh why mice suck uh ebola
2: yes please
1: all right ebola (laughs) it is we'll save the other two for later on um so it turns out that if you get ebola uh your outcome so uh, whether or not you should it turns out that if you're exposed to the virus whether or not you, it's just an inconvenience and you're not feeling well and you're very sick versus if uh, you need to, oh, update your will is based largely on your genetics, they're finding out. Um, your response to the virus is based on a uh, on a genetic predisposition to how you're going to deal with this specific virus. Um, or as this paper put it, uh, the paper's title is It's in Science – called host genetic diversity, enables Ebola, hemorrhagic fever, pathogenesis and resistance. And what they said was phenotypes, this is the how sick you get, phenotypes range from complete resistance to lethal disease to um, severe hem- hemorrhagic f- fever characterized by prolonged coagulation times and 100% mortality. So you either don't get sick at all or all your cells bleed out and you die with 100% mortality. And that has a lot to do with your genetics. They put that uh, inflammatory signaling was associated with vascular permeability and endothelial activation, and resistance to lethal infection arose by induction of lymphocyte differentiation and cellular adhesion, probably mediated through susceptibility, susceptibility to TEC. So um, what that's a fancy way of saying is that your endothelial cells, those are the cells that line all your blood vessels when you get Ebola, they start leaking like a sieve, and your all your blood vessels vessels essentially become like a colander, and you bleed out from everywhere. Your eye, if you look at people with uh, Ebola, moderate stages, their mouths are bright red, their eyes are bright red. Um, it's because all of those endothelial cells are starting to leak blood out, and you're 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 literally bleeding out like from a from a ten billion. Tiny gunshot wounds, essentially, is what it's doing to your blood vessels here. So, TEC, uh that stands for endothelial-specific receptor tyrosine kinase—and um, tyrosine kinases are, are really cool. They're uh, they're dimeric, so on the on the surface of your cell, um, if it receives some sort of input, uh, these two subunits bind together. And then they send this huge signaling cascade down to the cell to do to tell it to do all kinds of stuff. And so on these endothelial specific receptor tyrosine kinases, when it, when they interact with Ebola, they basically tell the cell to die or not, um, and they can start this death pathway here. And um, and it, depending on the mutations in this receptor tyrosine kinase that will determine how how much the ebola interacts in and, in and, and whether or not you are going to bleed out or whether or not the cell is going to shrug off the virus and be like yeah it's not that big of a deal so um and it's too bad i didn't do this earlier story because this study was only done in mice uh, they looked at all these different strains of mice and that's how they were able to get this spectrum to say oh you know like this mice this group of mice do fine this group 100 percent mortality you know um, um but it turns out that mice are not perfect analogs to humans, which is probably no surprise to anyone, but we use them because we're able to inbreed them uh, and and to make all these different strains. So how much this exactly translates to humans uh, is in question, but uh, it is certainly interesting. And it is interesting, too, that that mice can even get Ebola, because can you guys think of another major disease that almost wiped out the whole planet that involved mice and rats? Uh, was it oh. black? Plague. Yay, the plague. Oh, now, that yeah. was bacterial, um, which is a little easier. Viruses tend to be a little more uh, specific to their uh, – or they, they, they're, they're more picky about their host than bacteria are. But, um, but yeah, that bacteria that, – that, that was the plague, and that's how we did it. So, it's, uh, so if you think about Ebola, it's interesting that we can – that can be transmitted back and forth too, and that's not a good thing. Um, speaking yeah. of the plague, because it's a bacteria and you can basically just fix it with a shot – um, wouldn't it be kind of cool to say you had the plague,
0: just yeah. in some
1: broad life sense? Yeah, I guess maybe or not. <laughs> <laughs> because I, had the plague. I survived fun. the plague. I mean, that's a great way. That's a great opener to a conversation, isn't it? Uh that's and fantastic. and it's essentially like a hundred percent cure rate if you just get antibiotics. So, uh, so um, I'm not saying I necessarily want the plague. I'm just saying it would be. <laughs> So,
2: <laughs> you just want to have survived it.
1: I just want to have right. survived the plague. Yes. So, um, bubonic plague. I should be more specific. And you that. could totally get that here. Oh, you can. Uh, you think you're being. Cheeky, mister. No, no, you but, totally get it. In Tahoe, it's all yeah, over the place. Tahoe, yes, indeed. Uh, they, I think they found a couple chipmunks or something with bubonic plague a couple of years ago. Yeah, those rodents carry it. Nasty. It just goes to show you that, man, you think something's gone, and it just it can hide in the weirdest places. It yep. just pops its head out every once in a while. Just enough to let you know that we're really not in charge of this planet. <laughs> so awesome. with that, man, so many other things I want to talk about. Oh, well. We oh. have another uh, lifetime of podcasts. We to do, do have it. a lifetime. Well, we have you
2: can it. always do like a midweek feature for our listeners. We, yeah, I'm sure oh, they oh, love that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> we, we'll have to wait for episode 68 in two weeks. So, um, man. All man. right. All right. Okay. So uh, are we going to bypass the summary? Yeah yeah <laughs> All right. until Four until years. Bell
2: comes back in a few years
1: I know yeah. we're uh man, we're really petering out at the end of these shows now. It used to be like this fun little event. And now it's like, oh, so I guess we're done. All right. Yeah, I I'm, okay, I'm going go can,
2: we, can we just like send these shows to Dell and just have him do one of those anyway?
1: <laughs> that would be like, awesome.
2: <laughs> you have him listen to it and just record a quick little thing that we tag on to the end.
1: I do like yeah. it. Kind of like uh, like the Price is Right or Saturday Night Live, how they have just the guy whose only job is to do the intro. You know, come on down. You're the next yes. contestant. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think it's a great way to keep him part of the, of the action. It's
1: <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Beta Sandwich, and send us an email or comment on iTunes, and we will mention you. We will yeah. even plug something for you. you. You, you, want us to we say something nice about us? And if you're like, well, I'll also check out my website. I would even be willing to do that. I just want some feedback. I want some feedback. Yeah. Ooh. All right. Good
2: time. Okay. Go team. Good time. Wait, okay, so you guys have to stay after the air because I have a question.
1: Okay. Okay. Not for the listeners. Ha ha! Ah. (laughs) Ha! All right, bye guys. Bye.